So we're going to be in 1 Peter this morning, starting a new series in, obviously, 1 Peter. We're going to do the whole book, not this morning. Um, and I think it's pretty uh, cool the way God works out the timing. I had not thought about how applicable this would be to... Um, Just our situation. But Paul, Peter is speaking into, this is an interesting time in the church because what's happening here is what he refers to as the diaspora, which is a Greek word for exile. And what he means by that is the, the gospel has jumped over the wall between Jew and Gentile. And at this point, probably there are more Gentile Christians in the world than there are Jewish Christians. So think about the massive shift that would mean for the church. It means it's been become untethered, in a sense, from its cultural location and its physical location. And now Christians are scattered all over the place. And one of the things that meant was that they're now receiving social persecution cultural persecution. People don't get these weird Christian people and what the weird stuff they're talking about. And they begin to mock them, gossip about them, uh, lie about them to get them put in prison. We see that stuff happening all over the place. And the other interesting thing is this is a transition point because Peter wrote this somewhere in the early to mid-60s, not 1960s, first century 60s. This is right before Emperor Nero released his bloody, violent persecution against Christians. And Peter is speaking out, not just to his local church and the friends he knew in Jerusalem. He is sending out a wartime dispatch to the front lines of Christianity. All across. So imagine, when you imagine this being heard, don't imagine a large group like this in an open field or in a big room. Imagine maybe just one family or two or three families huddled together in a home, not knowing any Christian friends, living in a pagan culture with all the temptations and the misunderstandings and the mockery and the sense of being an alien and hearing what Peter is saying. It's a very different context than what other books in the Bible are. Um, so we're going to begin here, and what Peter does, first he welcomes them, and what I think is my favorite opening to any book of the Bible, because I think I get how Peter feels. He has this feeling that's not, it's warm, it's power, it's pastoral, but it's not sentimental. There's no pity here. It's like a general talking to his soldiers in a warm, he loves them, but there's no like all poor you kind of stuff. And I, this is how I feel about you guys right now. Is I love you and I feel warm and pastoral. I miss you. But uh, there's also this prophetic sense from God of let's get to work. There's a mission here. Stop staring out your toes and let's get to work. Certainly don't feel sorry for yourself. Let's get to work. God has something for us to do, right? And so let's read this. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's just identifying himself as the author. 
to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You get the tone? This is how the whole book is. Chin up, let's get to work. I love you, but let's get to work. So Peter begins now the content of his letter by reminding these dispersed and scattered Christians of who they are, which is, I think, what the church needs today, right now, like literally today. Not just you who are listening to this, and not just you guys who are online, but the church in this country needs to be reminded of who she is. Just exactly as Alan just prophesied to us. So first Peter, let's just look at three through five. And by the way, I apologize, I forgot to tell you that the song lyrics are linked in the description of the video. I did message them online, so they probably got the lyrics. You guys, if you didn't see the text message, they were texted out this morning on a PDF. I think we did all right. And my notes are also in your email and in the description of the video so you can follow along there. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's an awful lot here. I'm going to do it fast, all right? Verse 3, he says, according to his great mercy. This could also be read as by his great mercy. So our salvation was not initiated by us. Thank goodness. God didn't look at your awesome potential and go, hey, Gloria Cotton's a winner, or she's at least going to be a winner, so I'll, I'll save her. No. And it's not according to your great goodness. It's according to his great mercy. That's a big, big truth. Our salvation was not initiated by us. Peter has learned through hard knocks. If you read Peter's story, this is good news to Peter. <laughs> Peter was a stubborn, block-headed dude. I think it's one of the reasons why his name was Peter, which means rock. Because his head was like a rock. I don't think he would be offended. This is who Peter was, and it gives me hope. And he knows it wasn't his goodness, it was God's. Also in verse 3, it says, He has caused us to be born again. There it is again. He emphasizes the origin of this transaction. It is not us. We did not cause it. God has caused it. And then Peter uses this awesome phrase that he got, he didn't come up with on his own. He said, he has caused us to be born again. He got that phrase from his master. He got that phrase from Jesus who said we all must be born again. You see that in John 3, the story of Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus, 
truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus is talking about a spiritual birth, a rebirth. You have to be recreated. You're that bad off. You just God just has to start over and remake you all over again spiritually. That's what it means to be born again. But you're not just born again to be awesome. You're born again to something. We're not just born again to a state of moral neutrality like Adam and Eve. Don't be jealous of Adam and Eve. They were a blank slate, and they wrote the wrong thing on the slate, just like you and I would. God didn't say, okay, do over. Take a mulligan. Try again. He recreated you in a, into a covenant that ensures your righteousness, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. God is not the God of second chances. <laughs> God knows that no matter how many chances I get, I will eventually bite the apple again. Because the apple of that sin and rebellion is just so enticing. We needed a better way. And then verse 3, the I think the centerpiece of this scripture, and in a sense it is the one of the central themes of the entire letter, is that you are born again, to a living hope. What does that mean? That's our name. A lot of coincidence. We got it from this verse, right? Maybe we should start with what it's not. It's not a dead hope. Meaning it's not a hope that comes from you or I. We need this right now. Because the world is chock full of dead hope. Come on, let's come together. How are we going to do that with a dead hope? Maybe if we just pass the right legislation, and maybe we do need to pass some legislation. Maybe if we had the right laws or had the wrong people out of office and the right people in office. Solution after solution, dead hope after dead hope after dead hope, seeking resolution and unity and peace and all of these things that only Jesus can bring. We are born again to a living hope, not a dead one. We do not hope in an idea. We do not hope in a philosophy. We do not hope in our principles or our politics. We do not hope in our government. We do not hope in things like money, prosperity, or health. Thank goodness. We do not hope in something that will fade because our hope is alive. How so? Verse 3 tells us, through the resurrection. Because we have a living Jesus, we have a living hope. If Jesus did not raise, our hope would be dead. But he did raise, and so our hope is living. This is an interesting idea that Jesus talked about on several occasions. It's not just that he provides the resurrection. He is the resurrection. At that amazing event where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, you remember that story? Right before he did that, what did he say about himself? He didn't say, I'm a, I am going to do the resurrection. He said, I am. I embody it in myself. Jesus is the resurrection. He doesn't just resurrect. And then he says in John 14, 5 through 7, he tells his disciples a similar thing. He calls himself the way and the truth and the life. So he doesn't just show us the way or point the way. 
He doesn't just speak the truth. He doesn't just point out the truth. He is the truth. He is the way. He just doesn't just give us life. He doesn't just lead us to life. He is the life. The only way to get access to this living hope is to have access to the living Jesus. Jesus Christ is our living hope. And Jesus are all the things we have already listed. Our inheritance is in Christ so completely that Jesus would say, I am your inheritance. Your inheritance is not just awesome, cool things and a cool body and knowing a lot of cool stuff. Your inheritance ultimately is just Jesus. Our inheritance in Jesus is where Jesus is. He is in heaven preparing a place for us. We talked about that a lot with the book of Revelation, that that's what he's doing. He's not idly sitting around doing nothing. He is like a husband betrothed to his bride. He is preparing a home, and he is coming to get us soon, very soon. He is coming. But he is also by his Spirit in us. That's pretty awesome. So it's not a, we're not just waiting idly either. We're waiting in him and he in us. So this living hope is not just something we wait for. We actually can taste of it right now. As Hebrews says, we taste of Christ now. We also taste of our inheritance in Christ now. But our ultimate hope is not in the taste. It's in the fullness at the end. So look at verse 4. He starts to describe this inheritance. It's super exciting. Think about all these words. He calls it imperishable. You know what that means? That means eternally new. We don't know anything like this. Everything you have and everything you have experienced from your physical body and your mind all the way down to all the stuff you own and everybody you know, and everything you've ever seen or touched in your life fades. It's only new for a second. The new car smell wears off really fast, right? Some of y'all young ones, you still have the new car smell. At some point you hit, I don't know, for me it was about 40. I hit 40 and the new car smell was just completely gone, replaced by some unpleasant smells. Just ask my wife, my poor, forgiving wife. So this inheritance we have is imperishable. It is eternally new. It never fades. It's always brand new like the first day you experienced it. It is undefiled. Think about this. You know nothing that is undefiled. Just think about the money in your pocket if you even carry cash or the money in your bank. That money you own right now, before you had it, was probably used at some point before you to do something awful. You just hold a dollar bill in your hand. You don't know where that dollar bill came from. And then you can spend that dollar, and that dollar may go to some company that doing something terrible that you didn't know about. Everything you have is mixed. Every good deed that you do has a mixture in it. There's a... There's a tint of selfishness in there somewhere because you're getting something out of it. Even your best day was mixed. But the inheritance we have in Christ is undefiled. 
no matter how deep you dig into it, no matter which way you follow the money, forwards or backwards, it is undefiled. Colossians 1 tells us how this can be possible. Tells us that all things were made by him, being Jesus, for him and held together by him. He is the beginning, he is the middle, and he is the end of our inheritance. So every stage of your inheritance in Christ is held in his holy, perfect hands, not in yours. That's how it can be undefiled. Though you are touching it, it remains undefiled because he is the owner and the protector of it. Unfading. Not only does it last forever, it doesn't fade in quality or intensity. It doesn't rot like an apple on your shelf. It's ripe for a moment and then it fades. Eons upon eons upon eons into the future, your inheritance in Christ will be just as fresh and new then as it is now. I think Peter is making the point that this is not an earthly, man-made, man-centered, man-produced inheritance. It is an inheritance and a hope that is in Jesus. So this living hope, let's put it together. This living hope is an inheritance that is eternally new, unfading in both quality and intensity, so perfectly pure that it must come from Christ, through Christ, and be for Christ. This living hope is not of this world, but is born in heaven and is reserved for us there by the very hand of God. And by faith, we are guaranteed to one day claim that inheritance in its fullness. That is who you are. Peter makes one initial application of this truth to our lives in verses 6 through 9. He makes many throughout his letter, but he starts in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Thanks, wind. That is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter says, this is your hope. Your hope is in not these people are being persecuted. He says, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I know this is weird. You're out there isolated by yourself, watching the world burn. You know how it feels? I felt that way last night watching the live feed of the protests in Greensboro and Charlotte and Raleigh and Minneapolis. It's a weird combination being quarantined in, at your home watching through a screen what looks like just the world burning down. And Peter would say to us, and it's as true now as it ever was, hope in God. Stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Though you don't see him, 
him being Jesus. Though you don't see him, you love him. Though you don't see him, you trust in him. Though you don't see him, your faith is in him. Though you do not see him, your hope is in him, in him alone. It is not in anything or anyone else. That's it. Because you have a living hope whose name is Jesus, all of your hardship will be like a refiner's fire, refining your faith, so that when you see Jesus face to face, you will praise him, not for your own sake, but for the sake of his glory. So Peter offers no sentimental, circumstantial hope here, does he? He doesn't say, don't worry, it'll get better tomorrow. He says, no hope in God. He tells them it's all about Jesus. He says, all of your hope is in him. Your past, your present, and your future all hanging on him. Without him, you have no hope. And with him, you have an eternally secure hope. It is far greater than any difficulty you may be experiencing right now. So listen, this is not just who we are because we have the name on our sign. It's not just us on the, in this field who have hope. It's not just those watching online who have hope. It's anybody who will put their faith in Jesus has hope. And it's the only way. He just said, I am the way, right? Not just one of the ways. I'm it. You get that hope by getting him. This hope is what defines us as a church. It's what defines the church around the world. I'm so mindful right now of African-American churches trying to figure out how to worship this morning. It's a tough job. Stand in front of people who are angry and frustrated and don't know which way to go or how to feel. But this truth that Peter talks about is not just true for us, it's also true for them. And it is ultimately the way that we cross over the divides and touch each other and connect with each other is through Jesus. It's the only way.